Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we talk about what's happening in the energy market, what the future looks like for investing in energy companies, and whether commodities are still good diversifiers for investments. With Sarah Gresty, Head of Investments, James Neal, Senior Specialist and Senior Research Analyst at MFS Investment Management, and Sean Markovitz, Senior Investment Strategist. Welcome to another edition of Word on the Streets, where we try on your behalf to find a little signal for the noise of the weekly news. For this episode, we have Sean from our team and James Neal from MFS, who is simply steeped in energy markets and the associated companies, which is obviously pretty interesting perspective at the moment to bring to us and our listeners today. But before we get into the detail of the energy market, can I start with you, Sean? Anything else to mention to our listeners that we might have missed over the last few days? Well, it looks like the correction that we've seen in equity markets is stalling somewhat. Last week, there was a bit of a consolidation after markets were melting up on top of a number of economic surprises, mostly stemming in the US. And that seems to have slowed down somewhat after markets were looking somewhat frothy. And I think part of that is just the enormous amount of upside surprises we've seen in economic data, particularly this week, where we learned that economic confidence among consumers continues to grind higher. Some of that is probably just, you know, the lagged effects of the stock market soaring upwards and, you know, boosting the sense of positive sentiment among consumers who feel that their portfolios are doing well. But there's also a sense in which that could have legs, which might, you know, keep the economy on a on a strong foot. If we turn to the bond market, however, yields continue to remain relatively anchored at current levels with a lot of the easing of interest rate cuts that were priced out uh, remaining so for the next 12 months, suggesting that there isn't really an inkling of more easing to be put into back into the market as the economy remains strong. You know, inflation's coming down, but relatively too slowly for the central banks to start changing their tone. That's another thing that we learned this week. A number of central bankers gathered to discuss the policy outlook, the ECB, the Fed, the Bank of Japan, and the Bank of England, but all kind of sounding the, the same, similar tone in that they're not looking to take their hawkish tone away from the market. And on to the currency side, I think what caught my attention was the grind lower in, in the pound. The pound has been relatively strong despite you know fears of inflation continuing to grind higher. But this week, actually, we saw a bit of a correction in the pound. I think what we're seeing is investors speculate that the impact of very aggressive interest rate hikes will start to hurt the economy at some point down the line. And on, on the commodity space, which you know dovetails with our session for today, I think it's worth acknowledging just how strong the downward momentum in the asset class has been over the past 12 months. And I think what that reflects is the, the fact that China's economy has been on a pretty slow tear lower. Um, it's one of the biggest importers of commodities, particularly metals but also you know, a source of energy demand for the global economy. And that's also, I think, been one of the reasons why as an asset class, it's, it's been under somewhat pressure. Okay, very interesting. And that was a lovely segue into James. So James, we're delighted you're giving us your very precious time today. So why don't we start off with a little bit of what an average day looks like for you, if there is such a thing. Okay, well, thank you very much for having me uh, on the podcast. And as you alluded to at the start, I, I've 
Uh, I've been steeped in this sector for quite a long time. I've been an oil and gas analyst for, for 25 years now. I'm also a, a mining sector analyst. I've previously been an autos analyst as well. So an average day for me begins with me waking up and questioning the wisdom of some of my life choices, actually. But, um, <laughs> I've, I've been lucky well, enough. Well, thank though. you, thank you for your life choices because well, yeah, you do make an interesting guest today. <laughs> Bit of honesty there, but but I've I've been lucky enough to have been employed by 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 Massachusetts Financial Services MFS since 2010 as a European equity uh, analyst looking at the, the oil and gas sector and at the mining sector. I've also been a, a global sector leader for for energy for for MFS for that period of time as well. So my job consists of sourcing the best ideas in the energy sector from our teams of analysts in in Asia uh, Pacific and uh, North America and also emerging markets where what would be the best ideas to put into the portfolios uh, and one of the privileges we have at MFS actually is that the analysts are also investors we have a number of analyst run funds alongside the generous portfolio manager funds so each of the analysts has to consider their their recommendations in the context of the fact that they are investing their clients' uh, capital in those ideas as well. So it brings some real sort of world significance into, into how we look at the sector. That is an interesting day. Now, I know I can name a few very large energy companies, as I'm sure most listeners can, but the market is more than just the big players. Can you give us a sense for the number of companies and scale? Yeah, well, in Europe, actually, the number of companies has, has shrunk quite considerably because it's been quite a torrid time for the sector, actually, in the last sort of 10, 10, 15 years. But the sector's broadly split up into the, the large integrated oil and gas companies. You, you probably remember from around the sort of the turn of the 2000s, there were the big mega mergers in which a number of companies got together, BP, Amoco, and then Arco. Exxon and Mobil, etc. Those are the big integrated players. Alongside that, you have an exploration and production sector, which is smaller players focused on trying to find new resource. Uh, you also have an oil field services sector who provide the equipment to help these companies to extract and monetize that resource. Uh, you have pure play refiners. And increasingly now, actually in the last five years, you're starting to see market cap related to the renewable sector, so offshore wind players yep. and the like as well. So it's a fairly diverse sector, and you see those sectors across the different the different markets as well. Obviously, this sector of the equity market is quite different to others in the fact that you can't afford to ignore kind of the macro-political context to the same degree as maybe some, of you, some other stock pickers who might have a slightly easier time than you. Energy prices are the elephant in the room. So how do you and the team split your efforts between understanding top-down versus the more bottom-up invest, uh, inputs into the investment decisions? So our process is, is very much fundamental and bottom-up driven. But as you say, there is a lot of macro and geopolitics in this sector, particularly around OPEC and non-OPEC and, and, and the sort of, you know, the geopolitical impacts of, of who produces and who demands the, the oil and gas. And actually, I would say that the macro backdrop that confronts us today is about as interesting as I've seen it in my, in my time as an analyst in the last 25 years. And I think we'll probably come back to that. But what I would say also is that in my experience as an investor, that top-down approach to sector investing doesn't necessarily work that consistently. So, and in fact, a good example of that is 2022 versus 2023. You saw a lot of people who were extremely bullish around the sector in 2022. You know, they were the pigeon. And then this year, we're back to a position where 
you know, as, as was alluded to earlier, uh, demand is a, a risk and people are worried about recession and the sector is one of the worst performing in the market and the sector is the statue. So <laughs> effectively what you have is a, a problem of volatility in short-term cycles that makes top-down macro investing in the sector quite difficult. Now, what I would say, though, is equities are long-duration assets and oil and gas companies are very long-duration <laughs> assets. And a lot of the clues into what makes them good investments can be found from that bottom-up analysis. So we come off a period of looking at the oil and gas sector where for much of the period from 2008 to 2020, it's been an underperforming sector. And a lot of the clues to that were in the fundamentals of the companies. You know, they arrived in sort of after 2008, fully sort of loaded up with their capex, very pro-cyclically investing just as oil prices sort of peaked and fell down. So they put a lot of capital on their balance sheets that was overvalued. And so they kind of put in place the sort of the kindling for future write downs on the back of that. In the sort of QE period, they then followed the signal again and pro-cyclically invested. In, and in 2014, they were you know, at peak investment levels again. So, so they effectively put themselves in a position where they drove their returns down to very uncompetitive levels versus the rest of the market, in many cases, below their cost of capital. Alongside that, all that capex that they spent didn't deliver much growth. So you had 0% growth, low returns. And you also had managements that probably didn't quite understand the low profitability of their businesses because you found a situation where the dividends that they were paying were not reflective of the underlying profitability of businesses. I, I look back at this actually last week and over the period from sort of 2000 and 2000 ish to 2020, the European oil sector paid $600 billion of dividends. Sounds good. That does sound good. I'll yep. take that. But they generated $135 billion of, of cash flow after CapEx. So less they good. Up, less good, exactly. So they had to ultimately fund those dividends out of divestments and then also by raising debt as well. So when I was you know, presenting these companies to, to my peers, the other analysts, other sectors and generalists, they just didn't look very good companies relative to the rest of the options in the market. So I just want to follow up on one thing. Have you mentioned the kind of the period until 2020? Yeah. Have things improved since then? Well, I'm glad you asked that because yes, <laughs> <laughs> um, 2020 was something of a watershed moment for, for the sector. I mean, obviously, we saw a collapse in demand like nothing we've ever seen before. You know, at one point in the second quarter of 2020, oil demand was down over 20 million barrels a day versus a base level of 100. You've never seen anything like that. And over the course of the whole year, oil demand fell by about you know, 8 million barrels a day. So effectively, what you had was the risk that inventories were going to go through tank tops. And, and that's what you saw briefly for a period of time, the oil price went to, to zero. It reminds me of, and I, I think this kind of was the sort of watershed moment. There was a sort of a, a quite funny witticism at the time of, you know, a guy said, oh, you won't believe what just happened to me. I just came out of my house and I found this guy siphoning petrol into my car. <laughs> and, and so, you know, that was, that was the moment that the, the sector sort of woke up and thought, wow, we need to do something here. So they scrambled to high grade their business models. There was acute pressure on them to cut the carbon footprint within their business as well, because the narrative around stranded asset risk in the sector had become, you know, they turned it up to 11 at that point. So they had to do something there. And they had to come up with a new strategy. And for the most part, and this, this is the strategy I've 
I've quite liked. It's I, I call it the sort of tobacco sector redux model, which okay. is you're worried that your duration of your business model because of carbon is not going to be that long. So you have to come up with an investment case that appeals to equity investors. So you have to do a couple of things. Firstly, you have to reduce your spending and try and get your spending down to sort of 50 to 55% of, of, of your cash flow at mid-cycle. You have to improve your capital recycling. No more mega projects in the desert, you know, or offshore. You have to be able to take a lot of sort of lazy capital off the balance sheet and put it to work. You have to monetize the really good parts of your business. And some of these businesses have excellent trading and marketing businesses inside, and they, they, they can monetize the product much better. And then you have to distribute. You have to distribute the capital, the, the surplus capital that you generate, the cash flow. And so they've moved into a model where distributing about 30 to 40% of their cash flow, you end up with a sector on the current sort of multiples they're on, where if you invest in it today, you're going to get 100% of your your investment back in the form of, of dividends and, and cash distributions over a period of 10, 11, maybe 12 years. Now that mitigates the stranded asset risk. So what you end up with in this sector, where I think this is an interesting investment, is you're effectively getting an option on the duration of the fossil fuel age beyond 2030. Now, two years ago or three years ago, people would have said that was an option that was going to expire worthless because there was this feeling that oil and gas was on the way out very quickly. Three years later, that narrative has changed a bit because I think we've realized that actually the, the requirement for fossil fuels is probably going to last a little longer than, than previously anticipated. Okay. So that's how it got better. And so, so it's, it's really trying to find the best companies within that sort of rebuilt investment model. Yeah. So, I mean, I wonder if you could follow up with that with thinking about or sharing your thoughts for the outlook for energy prices where do you think they're going to go from now obviously there is a still a potential recession which mm -hmm. you know markets might need to clear but beyond that do you think demand and supply are likely to balance out so i did say at the start that i thought this was possibly one of the most interesting macro setups in, in my career and i i stand by that i'm not just saying it for the for the sort of for the, the soundbite. And the, the reasons for that are probably three things. Firstly, CapEx. Secondly, shale. And thirdly, energy transition. So if you take the first one, those CapEx. Now, through all those travails that I mentioned earlier, with the sector having overburdened its balance sheet prior to 2020, you've actually missed a couple of CapEx cycles. You missed the cycle in sort of 2015-16 because the sector was trying to improve its and repair its balance sheet. And then you missed the cycle in 2020, 21, because you know, the world was sort of falling apart a bit then. The problem with this sector, with energy, is that you have to face the sort of inexorable issue of geological decline. The existing production for oil in the world is going to decline somewhere around about 5% per annum. So you need to replace 5 million barrels a day every year just to stand still. You've also got the situation where, for these companies' permission to invest, is becoming harder, the, the, the lobbying against investing in fossil fuels is, is harder. So their capex is always put through a lens of high scrutiny. Now, 2021, 2022 capex is going to be somewhere around about 40% lower than 2014 levels. Okay. And there's a possibility in that those missed cycles, we've probably lost about seven, eight, nine, maybe 10 million barrels a day of oil supply that is going to come home to roost at some point. The second thing is shale. Now, last 
cycle, we had the miracle basically of you know, the sort of the US genius of producing unconventional oil and liquids from out of the effectively the source kitchen out of the rock by fracking it. And that added between 20, 2008 and 2020 about 8 million barrels a day of new supply. Now, that is probably not going to happen again in the next 10 years. And that's a problem. You know, firstly, we're getting to the point where those assets, if not heading towards decline, they're certainly maturing to some degree. Additionally, a lot of that growth was driven by low interest rates and free capital. So yeah. a lot of it was done. Those days are over. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, we hope. And then, you know, additionally, the problem with shale and unconventionals is you have this, this situation where it's not the same sort of decline curve as conventional oil and gas. You have what's called an exponential decline curve. So these wells after the first year of production can be 60, 70% uh, lower in terms of production the year after. So it's a treadmill that you cannot step off. So that's the risk here that ultimately that shale sort of revolution of the last decade turns into something of a, of a problem in the next one. And, and then the final issue is, is energy transition. And we all accept that it's absolutely essential. And there has been a lot of investment into renewables. So renewables investment since 2010 has gone from under 10% of total primary energy spend to over 50% of primary energy spend. So we've put, I, I think it's about $4 trillion of investment into, into renewables over the last 10, 10, 12 years. And hazard a guess as to how much that's reduced total consumption of fossil fuels. Well, it's a leading taken, question. <laughs> it is a leading question. So it's taken fossil fuels down from about 83% of primary energy supply to 81%. Okay. <laughs> so it's a slow process, and I'm grateful to having read, you know, people like David Mackay or or Tim Morgan, who wrote, you know, a decade ago about how this was a challenging effort to do with the energy transition, limitations around energy density, the lower energy returns on the energy you invest, you're moving from a high surplus energy scenario into into a lower energy surplus scenario. And so those problems are going to be there all the way through this next cycle. And ironically, of course, if we're going to continue with this process, you actually need fossil fuels to build the energy transition, right? You have, you know, if you want to make steel to put put up, you know, to wind generators, if you want to, you know, to, to basically heat quartz to make silicon at 4,000 degrees Fahrenheit, you need fossil fuels, I'm afraid. So that is the underlying supply issue that's going to to be around over the course of the next decade. Okay, that, that was really interesting. Also a little bit depressing. James, maybe we can finish off with, do you see anything light to leave us with? Um, anything positive in the market? Well, yeah, I apologise for being a bit depressing. And that's why they don't let me out very often, because I tend to scare the horses a bit. So I think I'd like to call it realistic. And, you know, for me, I think the interesting thing is, We've been able to ignore the energy sector over the last decade to some degree because we've had the benefits of share, we've had the low interest rates, we've had it, all that. And I think all, the conclusion I would maybe leave for, for this is that we should at least be aware that it's not going to be possible to do that in the next cycle. Okay. And the consequences for not getting you know, the energy equation right are quite profound for the broader sector. And, you know, 2022 was maybe a little sort of foretaster of the kind of risks you run if you move into a 
an energy shortage scenario where suddenly you're having to spend not 5% of GDP on primary energy supply, but 20%, that will crowd out other investments. So it's really a sort of a plea to think more constructively about the energy sector. And in the meantime, you know, the energy sector can provide some good investments as your hedge against that scenario as well. So, you know, there's the optimism. It's, it's a sector that I think is going to be quite interesting to invest in over the course of the next decade. Thank you. And that, she, that segues beautifully. That's to Sean. So I just wanted to finish with you, Sean. It's been really interesting to hear about energy from a real expert. But how do we think about commodities in our portfolios and funds that we run? So we have a broad allocation to different asset classes. And one of the asset classes included in our core portfolio and what we call the strategic asset allocation, which represents the long-term allocation to different asset classes, includes commodities. And in that is energy, but also other sub-asset classes such as metals and agriculture. And one of the main reasons why this is included in our core portfolio is because of the key diversification benefits. There is a long uh, history of literature showing that commodities as an asset class is a good diversification tool in portfolio returns, but also in terms of risk. I think a good illustration of that was in the first half of 2022, where almost every asset class is tanked on the back of recessionary fears and, you know, commodities really showed their true diversifying colors. We don't know when those kind of periods will resurface, but I think that's what makes diversification properties of commodities so attractive. And on top of that, I think it's worth acknowledging that as an investor, you should be compensated for the risk premium that you earn by investing in commodities. And it's based on this theory of storage that commodity producers have a price risk that they would like to offload to investors. They don't know how much their oil is going to be valued at when they sell it. And so they will look to hedge that risk, pass that risk on to investors. Investors need to be compensated for that risk. And so that risk premium is also one of the reasons why investors will often earn you know, a positive return by investing in commodities. So we look to kind of capitalize on that. That's really interesting. Thank you, Sean, for kind of putting that in perspective for us. And James, thank you so much for your time today to talk to us about kind of the energy market over the last 25 years and beyond. And lastly, thank you to our listeners. I look forward to speaking to you all again soon in another Word on the Street. All investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.